Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Amen. Okay, so here's an experiment. Raise your hand if you have ever thought about Paul as that cranky elder who lectures you all the darn time. <laughs> the one you know you're supposed to like, but dealing with him feels like drinking Robitussin. <laughs> okay, me too. Earlier this week, I went back and counted. Here in year A of the lectionary, we have 16 straight weeks of Paul's letter to the Romans. 16 straight weeks, people. <laughs> I think we could all be excused if here on week nine or 10, whatever it is, we all feel like singing that thing from 1776 that they sing at John Adams. Will somebody shut that man up? <laughs> but here's the thing. If we step back a minute, and if we look at the entire letter to the Romans, instead of just excerpts, I think we can get to a very different place in our relationship with Paul. Because at heart, Paul is a liberation theologian. And yes, I know that sounds counterintuitive because we hear him used as a battering ram so often. But stick with me because he really is. Back when I was first in seminary, one of my most formative experiences with Paul was reading Romans in Bible study at Christ Church Riverdale alongside African-American parishioners. People who had a profound reverence for Paul that I had never experienced in mostly white spaces. For them, Paul was all about liberation, and that got my attention. The second Paul conversion experience for me happened in a class on Romans with New Testament scholar Brigida Call. Dr. Call grew up in East Germany behind the Iron Curtain. Her scholarship is empire critical in focus which of course makes sense given what an oppressive regime she grew up in. Professor Call began our orientation to Romans by teaching us that all empires, and that would include our own American empire, organize themselves around the big lie. And no, I do not mean the lie about the 2020 election. This lie is even bigger than that one. This lie is that hierarchy is necessary in order for life to exist. 
that God deliberately created the world as a dog-eat-dog system, that the natural order of things is for most of creation to be subservient to the powerful few, and not only that, but that God desires us to maintain that hierarchy. Such a system inherently pits us against one another. Such a system justifies violence. Such a system insists that the strong have the right and indeed the obligation to take advantage of the weak and the powerless. Such a lie tells us over and over, that's just how things are. So don't even bother pushing back against it. Now you might say to me, but Posey, what about the Constitution? I'm just going to remind us all that our Constitution is an ideal that is a very long way from coming to full fruition. So it was in service of this big lie that we heard Jeff Sessions, when he was Attorney General, justify the separation of children from their parents at the border by quoting Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Could that really be what Paul was encouraging? A dog-eat-dog-and-might-makes-right way of being. Is that the message that Paul received from the risen Christ on the road to Damascus? Does that square with the same Paul who tells us there's no longer male or female, no longer Greek nor Jew, no longer slave nor free. No, it does not. Might make, makes right is absolutely not what Paul found to be the good news of the gospel. Professor Call's thesis was that instead, Paul, in this letter, indeed in all of his letters, completely disrupted hierarchy. That Paul viewed the crucifixion as the upending of human power structures built on oppression. That for Paul, the willingness of God to be crucified, to be the victim, showed that God was in solidarity with those on the bottom, not those on the top that God's preference is not to justify and uphold the oppression of the many by the few, that God chooses to create family instead of privilege, that God desires equity instead of power, and that God wishes for unity, not division. That is the kingdom of God made manifest in the world, that is the hope Paul found in the resurrection. That is the freedom that we are called 
to seek and to make real. So how do Christians get it so wrong? How do we come to hear Paul as the ultimate propagandist peddling the big lie? How do we twist Paul's words into ones of dominance instead of ones of resurrection? Here's the third aha moment for me about Paul. It comes from the scholarship of Douglas Campbell of Duke Divinity School. In 2013, he published a book on Romans that issued a bold rereading of the first three chapters. Campbell speaks of Paul using the rhetorical device of diatribe in those chapters. What that means is that Paul included his opponent's arguments within his own text. So in those chapters, Paul is trading arguments with an imagined straw man opponent. Given that Paul, when he was Saul, was all in on enforcing power structures, he really knew how those arguments worked. Professor Campbell states that the person carrying the letter to Rome, who was clearly a woman in ministry, a woman in ministry named Phoebe, would have been instructed by Paul to read it in two different voices. So it would have been clear to the listener that this was a debate. My friend Larry Harris said, his Bible study group one time put this to the test by acting it out, he said, with heavy Brooklyn accents. <laughs> and he said it really worked. It was amazing. But here's the thing. What this means for us is that many of the arguments we have attributed to Paul, the limiting arguments that people use as clobber passages, are actually the very arguments Paul was trying to refute. So even in the earliest years, when Paul was writing, Christians were already dividing, taking sides and creating barriers. They were establishing who could be in and who was out. The purpose of the letter to the Romans was to refute those very boundaries, because grace for Paul was unconditional. Which brings us to today's passage, one which sounds very liberating indeed if we let ourselves hear it as Paul arguing for unconditional grace. Too often, when we hear verses 29 and 30, we get all caught up thinking, am I foreknown? Am I, am I predestined? Am I one of the elect? That's what humans always do. It's what we do naturally, sorting and categorizing and deciding who is in and who is not. But that's not what Paul is saying. If we take seriously the idea that the Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep 
four words. If we take seriously the idea that God searches our hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit, if we take seriously enough that Christ Jesus intercedes for us, how could we think that anyone is left out of God's loving embrace? We are all foreknown. We are all predestined. We are all elect. There is a reason Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn of a large family, because that family is all of humanity and all of creation. That family is all that was and is and evermore shall be. Does this mean we have to be a Christian to be saved? No. Does this mean we have to be a very particular kind of Christian? Absolutely not. Paul is shouting from the rooftops that no one is left out. No one is left behind. No one is outside of the reach of God's loving embrace. No matter who they are, no matter what they do, no matter what they look like or who they love. Paul's letter to the Romans is good news indeed, because we are all called according to God's purpose, each in our own way. So then who will separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Is it any wonder then that Paul states, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what Paul believed. This is what we need to hear. So let the church say, Amen.